please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. If you're using the black Bibles around you, you can find Matthew 10 on page 815, where we will focus in on verses 5 through 15 this morning. Do you all think that life is um, challenging at times? And more particularly, do you ever feel like there's tensions in certain things that you're trying to pursue where you don't want to go to one extreme or the other? If you're leading something, parenting something, there's the tension of how do I not over-micromanage? but not be so hands-off where you just let something spiral out of control. There's tensions with our finances. I want to make sure that I'm being wise stewards and spending well, saving enough, but not just saving all the time where I'm putting all my comfort and security and my money, etc. I mean, there's everywhere you can look, I feel like there's tension and balances to hold. And in this text, that's what kept popping out in my mind as I was working through it. There are some tensions in discipleship, tensions in following Jesus. And there are tensions that I think even when you look at this time of the year in the story of Jesus at Christmas time that illustrate exactly these points. So we're going to try and wrap all that together as we read this text. See if you can observe some of them, and then I'll make some observations maybe different ones or the same ones you do. Follow along. Verse 5, chapter 10. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet from when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I want to first begin with an observation of this entire passage. If you were to read this for you individually, or you were to have my job and say, okay, teach this and apply it to church people, do you see any struggles in the text? Do you see any spots where you're like, that, that might be challenging to think through or apply? 
So here's the first tension I want to point out, and it's really about the whole passage. Jesus is making commands to his disciples, right? If you call yourself a disciple and follower of Jesus, then your general assumption would be, I should obey those commands and follow his teaching. So tension one, what is the way we should read the Bible? Is it a rule book where every time you read it, you should read it and that's the rule, so obey it? Or is it more of a storybook where you're just supposed to read the story and get out of it whatever you get out or maybe there's something else, but it's not like you need to obey exactly what it says. Maybe that's not a tension you see, but I see it in this text. There's a story about what Jesus is doing, but then there's also commands. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Are you going to obey that command? Your pursuit of fulfilling the mission of Jesus is to not go to people who are non-Jewish. That's what that means. Gentiles or Samaritans. That seems a little off, doesn't it? Doesn't Matthew's gospel end with Jesus saying, go and make disciples of all the nations? Why is he saying here, only go to people who are of the Jewish nation, the Israelite community? So that's part of the tension. There's also the idea of verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Do you do that? Should you do that? Verse 9, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And we'll unpack some of these more, but I just wanted to start with the bigger observation that there's some challenges at how to apply this text. And I think some of the tension is the way that we often read the Bible a lot of times, especially if you're not as familiar or trained in the Bible, as just like this rule book or principles for living. And I just open it up and say, okay, that's what it says. Okay, that's what I'm supposed to do. And if you do that with this text, you're going to be in trouble. If you do that with other texts, let's say in the Old Testament, you're also going to be in trouble. There's all kinds of commands in the Old Testament that are going to tell you to sacrifice animals for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't trim your beard or cut your hair. Don't wear cloth that has two different fabrics mixed together. Don't drink any drink certain beverages. Don't eat certain foods. Kosher food laws, etc., etc. So should we just take the Bible and read it as a rule book like that? Or should we just read the story? What's this tension? And I want to try and summarize it this way. The Bible is primarily, first and foremost, a big overarching story about Jesus. And throughout that story, at the various parts, there are rules and commands. And depending on where you find yourself in that part of the story depends on how you're going to apply those commands. So one simple way I'd like to summarize the story, if you're a note taker, write this down. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 says, the world is sick, like sick with sin. It's, it's messed up. It's broken. It's a spiraling down into destruction. 
Strangely enough, that spiral down leads up into a tower as its height of rebellion against God, but that's kind of the point, is that they're trying to reach up and make much of themselves, and that's the first 11 chapters of the Bible. The world is sick. Genesis 12 introduces a new character named Abraham, and from Genesis 12 to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, that whole section I'm going to summarize it this way. God chose the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, to be the doctors who would cure the sickness of the world. And he's going to give the people of Israel rules and laws and commands all throughout the Old Testament that will serve as medicine for this cure. There's there's a real purpose in those rules and commands in the storyline. God's choosing Abraham, and through that Abraham family, he's going to give with Moses laws and commands, and through that law, they're to set themselves apart from all the other nations, and through that, they're going to bring cure to the sin disease. And so as you read the story, you ask, was it Abraham? Was he the one that would lead the people free? Not just in the Israelite community, but the rest of the world. And the answer to this issue or question is that, no, it's not Abraham, it's not Moses, it's not Joshua, it's not any of the judges, it's not David, it's not Solomon, it's not any of the prophets, because each and every one of the leaders and all of the people in the community of Israel are like doctors who are not curing the disease, but spreading the disease. That's Genesis 12 to Malachi. They were supposed to be the doctor that cures all the other nations, but instead, as the people come to the nations and the the Jewish people go to the nations, it's as if they're spreading the disease all the more because they're contagious as well. It's almost as if it's being passed on through birth And so it leaves this hanging question, how will Israel ever cure itself or the world from this awful sickness and disease? They're going to need someone to become one of them, but from the outside who's not infected. So behold the story in Matthew 1 of the virgin birth. If you want, turn your Bibles back to Matthew 1 and you can see exactly what I mean. The angel came to Mary and Joseph, as we know from Luke and now in Matthew 1. And it says in verse 21, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The story of Christmas holds in tension these ideas of rules, story, and how the whole story works itself out. The reason I say that is because in the first few verses of our text, we see this tension between, wait, is it just for Jewish people or is it for the rest of the world? So let's read those verses again and we'll help see how the rules and the story work together. Look at verses 5 and 6 in Matthew 10 now. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So why does Jesus command these disciples to not go to the rest of the world yet, but only to the people of Israel? And part of it's because you need to realize how the rules in the Old Testament were to be the medicine to cure the people, but because of the people's own disease and sickness, they needed someone else. They needed a faithful Israelite. In other words, these verses are often confusing because most of us are used to hearing the gospel presented this way. God, humans, Jesus, believe. God was created good. He's good, and he created everything good. He's supreme and holy. He made man in his image, but man rebelled against him, sinned. But God sent Jesus into the world, not as a sinner, but as a savior, to rescue and redeem the world from sinners. If you'd like to be forgiven of your sin, repent and believe. Does that sound like the gospel? Well, it is. Amen to that? That is the gospel. That is the good news. But because you're so accustomed to hearing just those four category points, God, humans, Jesus, and then responding to that message by repent and believe, you're missing an important part of the story. In other words, what I just presented to you is Genesis 1, God created, Genesis 3, man sinned, and then maybe you want to go all the way to 11, Genesis 11, but what about Genesis 12 to Malachi? Like, do we just take that part of the Bible and say, let's just skip over that? Who really cares? I mean, we can if we're trying to be succinct and just quickly summarize the gospel. But in your minds, you need to realize that Genesis 12 to Malachi is a big part of the Bible and the story of Scripture and how the rules and the laws and the, the commandments all make sense. So I would present, if you'd like a fuller, not just like in your evangelism, you need to present it in this way, but a fuller understanding of summarizing the points, add a fifth point right in the middle. God created everything. Man rebelled against God. He chose the nation of Israel and the, the commandments that he gave them to be the cure to set them apart from all the other nations. That was his plan. The problem was not the commandments. The problem was the people who were infected with the disease. And so when Israel failed to obey the rules, it was not as if God said, oh well, that plan didn't work. Let's move on to plan B, Jesus. You see what I mean? You don't go God, man, Jesus. You go God, man, Israel, that's the plan, and then Jesus becomes the faithful Israelite who completely and perfectly obeys the commandments. Therefore, when he's telling his disciples, go first to the Jewish people and preach the kingdom of heaven to them, it's because salvation came to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. That was the plan in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed, through the Jewish community first. They would have the antidote to the cure, or the antidote and the cure to the disease of sin, the problems of this world. So I'm encouraging you in this particular point to not feel this tension between is it just like a Jewish ethnocentrism that's in this text, or a oh, we should care about all the nations 
Those aren't really held in tension. They're all one and the same. It was the plan from the beginning. It's not plan B when Jesus comes onto the scene. That's plan A. The problem is you need a faithful Israelite to carry out the covenant that God made with Abraham and then Moses and David. Who's going to be that person? That's what the Old Testament is asking. That's the big, big question that the New Testament then answers. The riddle is solved. The plan will succeed. So, Get that in our heads when we read the Bible and think through the gospel. God does not start over with a new plan of Jesus. It's a new covenant, but it's a covenant anew, not a brand new covenant. It's a renewing of the previous covenants now in Jesus Christ. This story is so important, and if you don't have this story in your mind, and you read this verse right here where it says, go first to these Jewish people, you'll be like, well, that's weird. Well, it's not weird, because you read the first part of the story. Genesis 12 through Malachi, and you're like, we're waiting, we're waiting for Israelites to finally have a community of people that come together and save and rescue the world. That's how God's going to do it. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, he's going to first start with the Israelites. This is why Paul says to the Jew first and then the rest of the world in Romans chapter 1. When both Jesus and Paul in the New Testament talk about their loyalty to the nation of Israel, it does not mean that they're Jewish ethnocentric It means that they are fulfilling the plans and purposes of God to bring the blessings to the whole world. And this, again, is alluded to in one of our well-known Christmas stories that Cy read for us earlier in the service. If Matthew is trying to present a Jewish ethnic version of Christianity or Jesus, then why does Matthew 2 tell us about a story of Jesus being worshipped from men from the far east, coming and bowing down and worshipping. Because from the first couple pages of Matthew's gospel, he's whetting your appetite for where this story is going. That through the faithful Israelite, the only doctor who doesn't have the disease, Jesus, he's going to create a new Israel. How many disciples did he send out in our text? Twelve. Coincidence? course not. It's the representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's starting a new, clean Israelite camp. That's the whole point. So when you think about Jesus, think about him as the fulfiller of God's promises, keeping them, and knowing that it is important for this step in the story to make sense. So what does that mean for us? Do we obey these commands, and don't go tell the good news of Jesus to people who are non-Jewish. Our only evangelistic strategy should be Jewish people. Well, how many of you in this room aren't Jewish yourself? Do you see the complexities here? Like, that doesn't work. How did you hear the gospel in the first place? Probably from a non-Jew. Do you see how the plan is fulfilling itself? This is just one step in the story. And at certain points when you're reading the whole Bible, there's parts of the story that just don't directly apply to you in the same way. So we should go share the gospel with Jewish people. We should share the gospel with everybody. That's how the story is going to finish. So our application should be share the gospel with everybody. And don't feel the tension between only sharing the gospel and serving somebody's practical needs. Notice the way in this text he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. 
cast out demons. At the bare minimum, regardless of where all of us in this room might stand and whether or not these things still happen today, my personal conviction is that they do, but maybe with less regularity, maybe with less frequency, not that we can demand it or that if you don't heal somebody in some miraculous way that you might not be a Christian or have God's spirit upon you, any of those kind of extremes, but that in fact people are amazingly and miraculously still healed. The basic broad point should still be God cares about the material, physical, created world, the people that have those bodies and their souls, all of it. So as John Piper has so eloquently summed this up, the tension between word versus deed, we should care about all kinds of suffering. As individual Christians, as a church, as we think about our outreach efforts and evangelism, we should care about all kinds of suffering, especially eternal suffering. Especially sharing the message of salvation that not just feeds someone's stomach for the day, but feeds them with the bread of life when they will never hunger anymore. So, in this text, hopefully you can start seeing how there's ways to read it and apply it to our lives in ways that are appropriate for this part of the story. We are on the post-resurrection, post-ascension part of the Jesus story. At this part of it, Jesus is still on the earth and still establishing plan A to fulfill God's promises to make Israelite community a nation and a people that would bless the rest of the earth. Hopefully that helps and makes sense, not just of this particular text and what's happening here at this moment of Matthew, but really the whole Bible. Let's move on to another tension in the rest of verse 8 and then through 10. The end of verse 8, it says, You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. If we just pause there, we can see that there's obviously something that's being given here as a specific instructions for how these disciples are supposed to go out and share the kingdom of heaven. Is it wrong then, if you read this text as some Christians have concluded, for you to pay me as your pastor to teach the Bible? Because if I'm a follower of Jesus according to just this text alone, it would seem like I should not receive any monetary gain for what I'm doing on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis. And so, therefore, some Christians have concluded paying pastors and Bible teachers and people that do what I do is inappropriate. Do not receive it. What's funny about that is that it seems as if Paul, later in the New Testament, takes this text in 1 Timothy 5 from Jesus and applies it as a reason for why you should pay your pastor. It's obviously my favorite passage to preach on and remind you all of and to tell you why it's so great for you to give to this church. I say that in jest, of course, but in all honesty and sincerity, I think we can learn from this text, again, an important principle. Even though there's a specific instance going on for how the disciples should live, don't you think there's this contrast here between living in luxury versus living in poverty? I mean it this way. When you read this, you notice that he says, don't acquire gold or silver or copper for your belts. Don't bring a bag for your journey or two tunics. Meaning, you can have one tunic 
or you can have more sandals, or, or at least some, for the laborer deserves his food. Notice there's this tension. But, so wait, if somebody works for something, should they get paid? And that's exactly what Paul picks up in 1 Timothy 5. It says, listen, if somebody works, feed them, take care of them. So in this, I think we should hopefully take the principle of we want to be on the opposite not on the opposite extremes of having church budgets or personal budgets that are in overt, crazy, luxurious lifestyle living choices. So when you saw our budget downstairs, the 2019 budget did not say, and by the way, we want to replace all these seats with sofas and cup holders and recliners so that when you come to church, you see what I mean? That's not, not what we want to invest our money in. We don't want to even give off the idea as a church that we want to make everything always comfortable and easy. Following Jesus is hard and it requires sacrifice. So if by God's grace he leads us to even more challenging of rental facilities in the coming year and we've got to do more setup and teardown, read this text again and be reminded, yeah, that's somewhat normal for followers of Jesus. It, it doesn't always come easy. And it's okay for us to cut costs and simplify things. I think all of these things are, are very relevant to what we're going through as a church right now as we look at our past budget and look forward to our 2019 budget. I praise God for the deacons and the elders that do more of that. I don't spend a lot of the time on the finances personally. I don't know any of your personal finances in terms of what you give to the church. That's a policy we started from the beginning. I'm not like not interested, not in regards to your individual giving, but I am interested in what's going on. I pray and care about the finances of our church, but it's not like my primary oversight. And so I say that because I think it's really good for us to be thinking about how our elders and our deacon of finance have done a really good job for the last five years of keeping things tight, not overspending, not spending on unnecessary gadgets or toys or things or trinkets or whatever. We don't have light shows or lasers. We don't have whatever you could imagine that might seem, is that really necessary for what we're trying to accomplish as a church? And we generally have that sort of conversation. Well, maybe we can cut this. Maybe we can cut this. And I think that's kind of the principle here. Instead of living in luxury, we also shouldn't pr promote the idea of living in poverty. It's not as if Jesus is talking about, well, just sleep on the floor. Who cares? You'll be fine. In the very next text, you'll see that he encourages them to go into homes, that they are allowed to receive the wages for their food. It's a normal custom in the first century during the time of Jesus that Jewish teachers, if they went around from town to town and they taught something, they would get paid for it. And so what he's saying is, listen, the gospel is so free, the kingdom of heaven is so free, I don't want to give any indication whatsoever that people are trying to just get money out of this. So we're going to have especially minimalistic approach to this particular mission. And I think that's extremely appropriate for us to choose, but we don't have to do it that way, but we probably don't want to go to, obviously, the either extremes, if that makes sense. So I still want to encourage you to try and fulfill our 2018 budget, to give generously and cheerfully to our 2019 budget, and I'd love for us to be able to maintain some consistency and stay in this particular meeting space. But at the same time, if we need to move on from here and go somewhere else, we will let the Lord lead in those ways.
it's really up to us as a community, right, to see how God will lead in our giving and our service in that way. So hopefully you can see the tension here of not overdoing it one way or the other. In this next section, you'll notice in verses 11 through 14, I think a tension of acceptance versus rejection. In verse 11, it says, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Some people give the impression that everywhere you go, Christianity is going to be warmly received and accepted, and the message of Jesus will have no opposition, and we get surprised. It's like, wow, this is challenging and difficult, and people get upset and angry. And on the other hand, people just think, well, we're just going to be hated by everybody and always be annoying, and we'll, it's just part of being a follower of Jesus. I think sometimes that mindset is like overdone to the sense where it's like, no, it's not the gospel that's offensive, it's just you. You know, because you have this mindset that apparently being a Christian is to be offensive. And that's not what he's saying. You should be able to go up to somebody in this story he's suggesting and be able to be welcomed in their home and not so offensive to them that they're like, hey, get out of here. Now, if they reject your message, that's when Jesus says, shake the dust off from you. So put, put these two pieces together to help you understand what's going on here. First, remember, where did Jesus say to go? What cities, towns, and villages? Only Jewish ones, Right? So he's not going to pagan, Gentile, Samaritan ones. He's going, they're going to Jewish ones. So the houses are going to be Jewish homes. And so then he says, say peace to them, which would have been that common greeting in the Jewish community, shalom. And then they would say shalom back, and it'd be like, hey, we're all good, and we're going to have a nice relationship here. But if they reject the message and the mission of Jesus... Then he says to them, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house. Now that's the custom that they would have done any time they traveled outside of their Jewish community. And before they got back into their home or into the city limits, they would shake off the dust of the pagan land that they were just in as a symbol of like, yeah, those are unclean, dirty, not dirty in like the sense of dirt, but more of the ceremonially unclean. And so to just make sure we're not bringing any of that back with us symbolically, they would clean themselves off and shake off the dust so that when they come back to their house or city, it's just a pure Israelite camp and community. So do you realize what Jesus is saying here? If people reject the message of the kingdom of heaven through Jesus' message, they're no longer in the Jewish community. Do you think that might be a little offensive? You've raised your entire family a certain way. Lo and behold, some group of guys come, and they start talking about this man named Jesus. And then you think, no, that's not what I want to do. And then they say, you're no longer a real Jew. You're going to wipe off your dust and say, essentially, you're a pagan. You're an outsider, not an insider into God's kingdom. I think we need to realize that the message in and of itself is offensive, but not unloving. It can be offensive to people who don't think, if you use our earlier illustration, if Jesus has the cure for the disease, it is not 
narrow-minded or bigoted to say, I have the cure of cancer. Now, if I don't, then I'm lying. But if I do, it's not narrow-minded, is it? It's just true or false. In the same way that if Jesus is the Savior that would come to the world through the Jewish people, then he either is or he isn't. It's not narrow-minded or bigoted for us to go around and make that claim. The question is whether or not people want to admit that that's the true reality and that Jesus can cure through his gospel. So I think through this tension, we can hopefully see that there's this sense of being both accepted at times because he's showing that they should stay at the house if they're worthy, stay there for a while, or they should just move on. Move on not to just say nothing, but as a judgment against them, which is why you have this last verse in the paragraph. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And if it seems strange to be reading about Sodom and Gomorrah during, you know, an Advent season Christmas text, uh, this is the reason why. Jesus brings this up as an example of probably one of the most severe acts of God's wrath and anger and judgment against a rebellious people. It's kind of like the, the height of, of sin got really, really bad. And if you read the story, you can see why. So as you look back at Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus is saying, listen, you all have more information, more knowledge, more opportunity, because you've been told the whole story and how it's climaxed in Jesus, and if you've gotten rid of that, well then, there's no hope for you, and you have even greater responsibility with the greater knowledge that you've now been given. It'll be worse. Think of the words Jesus says elsewhere, too much has been given, then much will be required. I think that's the principle he means here in verse 15, that it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town that rejects Jesus as its Messiah. So there's some tension in these verses about acceptance and rejection. The last one I want to point out is in verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's four different animals in this text. There's sheep, there's wolves, there's serpents, and there's doves. And I think that the sheep and the doves basically are portraying the same idea. First, that they're innocent, they're weak, they can't really defend themselves very well. And then the wolves are naturally the false teachers, the people who are going to be opposed to the message of Jesus, those who reject, those who will eventually hurt. I was listening not too long ago of a concept by a philosopher who says that the history of the world, there's basically two kinds of power, especially in the modern day era where people try and use power to gain influence. And the first is hard power, where you use military might, power in terms of strength and brute force. But then there's soft power, which is intellectual ideas. It's propaganda. Think of movies and films. Hollywood is a great example of soft power. It's extremely influential. 
has all kinds of messages and motives, but it's not doing it with guns and, you know, tanks, missiles. Here I think you see what Jesus is trying to get at by saying, listen, you're going to be a bunch around a bunch of wolves. And as you read the rest of the paragraph, as we'll look at next week, they're going to use hard power, force, might, military strength. But I want you to use soft power, like a serpent, innocent like a dove, like a meek and mild sheep. Some have suggested that the reason why they're not supposed to carry around a staff is because the staff was mainly used for protection. And they don't need it because they're not going to fight back. Because they're going to be like innocent sheep, like doves. Which then starts begging all kinds of application questions for you and for me, to which I think for the most part we already saw in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says, do not repay evil for evil, turn the other cheek. Jesus is committed to a way of nonviolence. And so at this point, it's almost like the tension that we sometimes feel when people are thinking about these concepts where Jesus is saying, and especially in a land like America, where all kinds of violence and gun owning and conversations about those things and the rights that we have to bear arms should, I think, be thought through in light of the message of Jesus. And what I mean by that is the idea that it's not like Jesus is saying here, that you're not supposed to do anything and you should just lay down and just let people walk all over you. There's a tension, isn't there? There's a tension between don't take your rod and staff, be like a sheep or a dove, but then be wise as a serpent. In Genesis 3, did the serpent use its fangs to bite? No, that would have been hard power. That would have been using force, using its venom, but instead the serpent used the deceptive lie, soft power, and the negative connotation there. Positively, instead of lies and deception, we should use soft power of truth. Use the message of the gospel. And we don't have to choose between those crazy examples. Every time these conversations come up, I feel like it's, well, if somebody comes in and they're going to try and steal your children, Phil, and they're going to take your wife from you, wouldn't you do something? As if my two options are either shoot them dead or just lay there and watch. Do you see the tension? As if violence has to be the first reaction of followers of Jesus for how we're going to respond to issues that come up. And as if that scenario happens all the time, every day, and we need to make sure we think through what's going to happen in that moment. My point in all of that is to say that a lot of times we're not really following Jesus in the way our principles and and our our precepts are in regards to how we think through Jesus' way of nonviolence his approach to influence and power. The way of Jesus, the message of Jesus, is not fight evil with more evil, fight violence with more violence. Be a serpent. Be smart. Realize that there's other ways that even allowing at times certain things to happen, as you see in the next section where Verse 17 says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Where God will use suffering of Christians for the sake of advancing his gospel. You don't have to be anxious about what you're going to say or what you're going to do in that hour because God's going to give you an opportunity to speak through his spirit.
So the gospel is free. Do you notice that in verse 8? You have received without paying, so give without pay. It's a free message of salvation, but it was costly. And that's the last and final tension I want to point out, is that if you're following the whole message of how Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world, and the principles that I think we should apply to ourselves, it should be that it is both costly and it is free. Free to receive, but with receiving the freedom of this message, it becomes costly for our lives because it costs all of us. So to sum this up, I'm going to turn to Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his great work on the cost of discipleship where he coins a phrase called cheap grace. And in this, I think he captures the tension of what following Jesus is all about in terms of the costly and free nature. Cheap grace is when you preach forgiveness without repentance. It's getting baptized without the discipline of your community. It's the Lord's Supper without any confession of your sin. Cheap grace is grace without any discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without the living and incarnate Christ. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field that for the sake of which people go and sell with joy everything they have. It's the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is the sovereignty of Christ for the sake of which you tear out your eye if it causes you to stumble. It's the call of Jesus which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which has to be asked for. The door at which one might knock again and again. It's costly because it calls us into discipleship. It's grace because it calls us into Christ. It's costly because it costs people their lives. It's grace because it makes them live. It's costly because it condemns our sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it cost God. Because it cost God the life of his son, whom the scriptures say, you were bought with a price. Because nothing can be cheap to us when it was costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's Son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us alive. God did indeed give him up for us. The costly grace is found in the incarnation of God's Son. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, into the world to rescue Israel from their sins, and so by doing that, rescue the world from their sins. We thank you for the ways that Jesus has instructed us how we are to live in this world as followers of Christ. I pray you would give us much wisdom as we try and apply these truths and hold these tensions. I pray, God, that you would help us as Christians as Christ followers to give our total and full allegiance to him because Christ gave all to us. May the freeness of the gospel 
never be compromised in our preaching, in our thinking, in our repenting. And may that freeness always lead us to greater sacrifice, greater love, greater discipleship, greater giving and generosity, greater willingness to lay down our lives because of how Christ laid down his life for us. God, we thank you for this costly grace that was displayed on Calvary's cross for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.